Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of boutique consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques, with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign-up offer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, I have the pleasure of chatting to Asad Ahmed, founder and CEO of Phase 3, the Manchester-based consultancy that provides professional and managed services across HR, payroll, and finance. As a born entrepreneur, Assad founded Phase 3 at a young age, and despite his self-proclaimed aversion to planning, he was able to successfully steer the company's growth, something he puts down to his ability to foster great relationships and his willingness to take a chance and back himself to succeed. Fast forward to today, and Phase 3 has over 100 employees across the UK and has built an award-winning culture, being named one of the UK's best places to work in consulting and professional services by Great Place to Work, something we discuss in detail in this episode. During this one, Assad and I talk all about Phase 3's remarkable journey and many of the unconventional steps that took him from door-to-door salesman to consulting CEO. We talk about the importance of taking action for aspiring entrepreneurs and how it was those first steps that led Assad to found Phase 3. We explore the unexpected consequences of winning a major new client and how winning their biggest deal actually held back Phase 3's growth. We talk about how Phase 3 managed through the financial crisis and the importance of its customer-centric approach for helping it to thrive as they came out of it. And as I mentioned, we discuss culture and the importance of building a strong culture and why Assad always puts his people first. Whether you are just starting your consulting journey or you're a seasoned pro, maybe even you're looking to start your own consultancy. This one will give you so much that you can take and apply straight away to help you in 2024 as you grow your career and your consultancy. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please enjoy 
today's conversation with Asad Ahmed. Asad, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. Not at all. We'll, we'll talk about everything in terms of how we've got to know each other. And I can see the Great Place to Work logo on your background, which is where we first or where I first came across phase three. But then it turns out we have a mutual friend, which so that people keep listening, I might not share so that they can wait and find <laughs> out who that is later in the series. Maybe to start, as I said, before we go on to our mutual friend, for those who maybe don't know you so well, could you give your background and an overview of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Asad Ahmed, I'm the uh, the founder and CEO of Phase 3, and we are providers of professional and managed services across HR, payroll, and finance. So we get involved in things like HR system selection, implementation, project management. We provide managed payroll services and so on. I've been doing this now for almost 20 years, Nick, will be 20 years in, in March. 24. Wow. Yeah, I know you can, well, I've got a lot of gray hairs. You probably can't see them, but I have. And um, I started kind of in various sales roles for a few years post uni. And then kind of, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say I stumbled across this industry. And um, and yeah, here we, here we are 20 years later. Fantastic. I said, well, a, a lot for us to dive into. It certainly doesn't look like you've, you've been in it 20 years, I have to say, in a good way. <laughs> good genes. <laughs> exactly. And I think I'd love to start with that origin story, because I'm always fascinated where, where I speak to people like yourself who've, who've launched their own business, who's founded their business, and particularly given how long you've been running it, you know, that origin story is fascinating. And you touched on there, you know, you'd done sales roles in a, for a few years before stumbling across HR, and I'll let you unpack that yourself. What was it that made, you know, led you into sales originally? You know, I know we talked about sort of you were at Queen Mary's in London and, you know, Mile End. I obviously spent some time there a little later than you, but, you know, lovely part of London, lots going on. What led you to go from there and say, right, I'm going into sales initially? Do you know what, Nick? I, I wish there was some kind of, you know, one real story I could tell you about this in terms of I really wanted to enter into sales and I saw it as my future and all of that. But it's actually not the case. I think in those days, going into like a sales, very much like a lot of people in in this generation go into like a call center first, maybe whilst, you know, part-time or this, because those roles are more readily available. It's not almost like a career choice at that point. And it certainly wasn't a career choice that when I first started, I actually wanted to be a journalist at some point, kind of pre-uni. So that was why I did my work experience and stuff in. But I just, I was always good at speaking with people. You know, I had a background. My father came to the UK from from Pakistan and, you know, set up businesses here and convenience stores and, and all that kind of stuff. So I always knew it was kind of subconsciously wired into us that we would always have or you'd always run your own business. What that business was, I wasn't too fussed about at that point. And then I ended up in in various sales roles post-university. I did things like sell fake perfume door-to-door, Nick. And I assume that's what it sounds like on the tin acid. So like, your, you know, your Hugo boss was actually a Hugo Dross. And, uh... Absolutely. Yeah. Gucci was, you know, Poochie or something or Coochie. God knows what it was. <laughs> but it was, I did that. And do you know what? everything's a, a, a part of the journey. Yeah. And I made some great friends, had some great times and I was actually pretty good at it, but I was, I was kind of knocking door to door, you know, 
young kid, kind of ballsy, no care in the world. And I, I sold a bit, realized that it was actually some kind of pyramid scam, and then walked away, did a little bit in terms of selling corporate hospitality for a company for two, three weeks, months, something like that. And then I fell across what I would call my first proper job, which was at a company called New Horizons in Manchester, city centre, which was selling IT training courses. So office courses, Microsoft certified developers, MCSEs, MCDs, all of that kind of stuff. And Here's a bit where I promote my sales skills and, and talk about myself a little bit. I broke a few records whilst I was there in terms of month sales and uh, heist. New, the, the Manchester branches just opened. So we were like the first intake of, of staff. Um, I did the highest ever recorded first month sales and broke a few more records. Began. And I just found that I was good at speaking to people over the phone and I built rapport quite well and relationships and so on. And then did that for a little bit, but I was, I was young and keen and eager. And I left there thinking I'm going to go on to oh, much bigger and better things. But with, with zero planning, I didn't have another job to go into. So you left, you just thought, I can find better than this. And I'm yeah, going to go. Absolutely. Go and I, do I, it. I, I, very naive. I was living at home at the time. So, you know, I didn't have a, any bills to pay or any kind of financial responsibilities. A few quid in the bank and I was okay. And then my father was away at the time. He was abroad. And he was coming back to the UK and I wasn't working. I thought, oh God, if I'm not working, I'm just going to get, got a few lectures here and I, I better do something. And in those days, the sales jobs used to be in the Manchester Evening News newspaper on a Thursday. So I applied for perhaps four or five jobs. I promise you, Nick, I didn't even know what I was applying for. <clears throat> just applied for a few jobs. Ended up getting a job in crew around kind of crew Nantwich for a company called Total Amber which provided HR and payroll consultancy, kind of niche recruitment. And I was there, got that job, absolutely loved it. I was there for three years, great team. And the founder of that business, Alan O'Neill, became a bit of a kind of mentor to me in terms of I'd never seen that environment before. And, and it was very sales intensive, but he would treat us so well and always there for us. And honestly, like a, like a mentor to me. And I was there for three years and I thought, I can do this myself, you know, and that is how I started phase three. I, I was at Turkland for three years. I thought, you know, I'm earning 10, 20% commission or whatever it was. I could, I could do this for myself. And I, and I then went out and, uh, and set up phase three in, uh, in March, 2004. Wow. That is, that is quite an origin story, I said. And, uh, yeah, I, I love the I love the idea of going door to door selling fake perfume, but we probably won't spend too much longer on that. Or there's there's a conversation. I don't know if you still have. You didn't keep any of the bottles. I always find it's like when you get the Ray Bans on holiday or the Fay Bans. No, you know what? I I didn't. But I, I'm actually a bit of a a, a fragrance snob now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite into my niche fragrances and stuff. So maybe there's some kind of link back to twenty odd years ago that's kind of resurfacing now, Nick. I don't know. Look for the next phase three business shortly. Hey. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, we were obviously talking before this about nurseries, which we we might not come on to today. But there's there's lots in here. I said, and I guess just a couple of bits because it was intriguing, and I find, you know, we'll talk all about kind of the journey you've been on with phase three because obviously this grounding in sales has been a phenomenal part of that success. But I always think it's interesting to open up because our industry of consulting people typically start from a consulting side where they 
you know, they don't sell until they are 20 years in. And, and sometimes that catches people off guard. So I'd love to get, you know, you mentioned you went into this first firm, you broke records, you know, day one or month one. And obviously at, at Total Amber, you you did well. Kind of, what was it that you were doing differently to others? What was the thing that you were like, and you might, you've probably thought about this, like what's the thing that you did that really differentiated you from those other salespeople that you were working with or, you know, you were competing with in that respect? Okay. I will say at this point, I think other people that I was working at also did very well as as well. And I certainly learned from from everybody around me. I think in those days, I was a little bit more empathetic towards people I was speaking with. I think there's a there's a bit of a a, a problem in in sales in terms of the image in that, oh, you're selling to people. And that kind of conjures up images of used car salespeople or double glazing or something like that. And it isn't. It's just it's just a process you're following. Like in 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 all other areas of business, you're just following a, a set of processes. You speak to a customer, you're trying to add value, you're trying to help them. And and that's what I try to do. Don't get me wrong, certainly in the early days I had one eye on my my commission as well. You know, I think any good salesperson has to really but that's all i did i just created relationships with people i created rapport with people i was i was, I was you know young fearless fearless and all that kind of stuff and I, I really enjoyed what i was doing a lot of people in sales don't enjoy it you know that perhaps i was i was lucky in that the environments i was in were not too too heavy in terms of being too target driven in, you know, if you don't hit your target for two months, you're out. And yeah, I've heard stories from from people I know, friends who've been in those environments. Well, mine was not quite as as hardcore, so perhaps it gave me a little bit more time to bed in as well. But I I just really enjoyed it, and I, I loved speaking to people. I, I love your point around process as well, there, Asa, because I, I think you're right. You know, sales does get a bad reputation, and you know, I for me, it was always the people who sold things around dinner time. I don't like that was the resounding memory in my household. It was always people who called around six or seven PM and you know, that was you know, your parents would not want to speak to them because it was dinner time. And that was my perception of sales. And I think that has lingered. But to your point, actually, like in any consulting or in tech, you've got a process. And if you enjoy the process and can do it well, as you obviously can, that that bears fruit. I think there's there's probably a lot for us to talk about in this. And I might save more till we get to the kind of actually running the business now in the different business areas. And so to bring us back to the stories as you told it, going out on your own in some ways is a really obvious thing to do, but in others, you know, you're kind of three or so years outside out of university, you know, you've you've got a bit of experience but not tons and suddenly going out to start your own business. Like how did you do that? You know, again, for listeners thinking about doing that, like what does that look like? And obviously, I guess that was 20 years ago as well. Kind of, if you were doing it now, would it be the same? Would you have done anything different? Like, what was that early period like? It was great. I absolutely loved it. And I just went out and did it, Nick. I got on the phone. I'd learned everything. I took everything that I'd learned over the, the three years of Total Amber, the year, year or so before at uh, New Horizons, put it all together. And I just understood everything about the the niche markets that phase three operated in as we obviously first began, which were essentially kind of HR and payroll 
you know, the model was bums on seats, kind of contractors, you know, pay them 400, charge 500, 600, you know, that kind of model. I understood the markets enough to talk the talk. I couldn't walk the walk because I wasn't a contractor. I wasn't a consultant. I didn't understand HR systems or payroll systems. But then that's where my relationships with the consultants came in. And they would attend meetings with me or they would speak to customers with me, for me in some cases. And I, and I think going out and doing it is still the number one approach. You've got to be fearless. You know, I was young at the time. Doesn't mean you have to be young, obviously, to, to, to start a business. And I still have customers and clients, uh, consultants from the early days of phase three, so kind of 19, 20 years ago. I'm still in contact with them. I still pick up the phone. Some of them are still working with us, which is ridiculous, really, to think if you think about it. That's always a good sign, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, and I think I, I won a lot of business just because I built relationships with both customers and consultants. And, and that is absolutely key. I think it's a skill that's often forgotten about rapport building, relationship building, but in every element of every function of every business, it's about the relationships you build both internally and externally. I really like that. And it, just to help me, because it'll also help our listeners. So the early you know, phase three, that sort of version one, if you like, you mentioned, so it was contract recruitment, but it sounds like you'd almost from day one, you were positioning it as a consultancy, you know, to your point, that margin is that right? You would say, well, look, these are phase three people as opposed to, you know, we at phase three recruit contractors for you. How was that? Yeah, we were positioning it as consultancy, but we were using contractors. But the contractors would nine times out of 10 only be working with me. We had no IR35 or anything ridiculous, obviously, in, in those days. And they would, you know, in some cases, they had a phase three email address and they'd literally work 48, 49 weeks of the year just for me, whether it's at one customer, whether it's at 25 different customers. So they may as well have been employed, but there were, there were actual contractors. Because I didn't, at that point, I didn't understand or know the kind of employed FTE marketplace. I, I just went with what I knew. And yeah, so <laughs> we were kind of masquerading as a consultancy, I suppose, but uh, without actually being a pure consultancy. No, it's a, it's a great model. And I've, I've had other guests who, you know, built firms, sold firms, to your point, largely based on yeah. that kind of contractor model. And just because this will inform my next question, was that the model Total Amber had? So had you seen that model? Yes. Was Total Amber? Okay. Yeah. So you would, yeah. so that was, I was going to ask if they were a recruitment firm, how did you kind of learn that model? But to your point, if they were that model, you then kind of were billing yourself out in that way. I think there's an interesting piece Again, in this for you know others listening of right now, you know you run a big organization. It's clear you've got credibility in the space. Back then, again, you were one guy on his own with a mobile phone, and you alluded to it, I think, a bit with bringing colleagues and contractors in. But how did you build that and demonstrate that credibility so early on when you know it was just you in your kind of spare bedroom at your parents' house? How how did you get those early clients to believe in you enough that you could you know solve those problems and give them the consultants to help? I think it's about the value that you add or the perceived value that you add. You know, we talked earlier about getting uh, sales calls at six o'clock, seven o'clock, you know, dinner time, this, that, and the other. If you've got a roofy, uh, a roof that's leaking and you get a sales call at six o'clock, seven o'clock about someone actually total fluke that they can fix your roof, all of a sudden, oh, your interest is peaked because 
it's something that's going to offer or potentially offer you value. And it's exactly the same here. We would, I'd only operate in a small market. There was probably four or 500 customers using a particular type of HR software at that point. And I knew every single thing about that market. Yeah. I'd speak to the consultants. I'd speak to the contractors. What are the latest upgrade plans? What's the latest enhancements? What are the latest modules that are being released? When's the cutoff date for this release and this update? All of that kind of stuff. And I'd use that information to add value to the customers that we were speaking to. And I think, you know, you need a bit of luck. As much as I'd like to say it was it was all on me, the, the reality is you need your first customer. You need your second, you need your third. And then from that, you can build and people speak to each other, particularly in small, niche, incestuous marketplaces. And I think it, that looking back, that's probably how I got people to trust me because A, I was honest and upfront with them. B, I understood the market. I, I knew what I was talking about and, and my team, the consultants knew what they were talking about. And I think, I, yeah, I think people liked me. It's a very underrated <laughs> skill. <laughs> it's not one to like you, particularly in those early days. Well, I, I, like you say, it's underrated, but it, it is critical. Is people, businesses are just that. And, and, you know, even tech businesses, you look at Twitter or X, as we now call it, you know, the amount of people who have left that platform because of Elon Musk running it, you know, that's nothing to do with the tech. And I know that my friends who have liked Twitter might disagree, but ultimately it's the same thing. It's just run by a different human who they now dislike. And so I think your point, your point's really key there. I said, and I like what you say, your roof point is spot on, isn't it? It's actually, you know, why do I always say this to friends, you know, why do estate agents in London letter bomb you for, you know, how many times do you sweep? I'm sure it's the same in Manchester, you know, how many times are you sweeping things off your front door from estate agents? But the one time you want to sell your house, you you pick up the phone. And actually, I guess that comes back to your point of process, doesn't it? Is understanding that's part of the process, not rejection. It's just timing. Yeah. And I think it's mindset, isn't it? You know, if you're you're going into this thinking that every single call you make is going to result in a conversation, let alone somebody wanting to work with you, then you need to manage your expectations because that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen unless, of course, you are perhaps Elon Musk, in which case it, probably everyone wants to speak to you. But certainly not everybody wanted to speak to me. I, and, and, and I had people put the phone down on me and I had people say, we're not working with you. We're only going to work with a vendor because we're obviously pitching ourselves as more affordable as, than the vendor, as, as independent. And, you know, we guaranteed quality and continuity, all this kind of stuff that the vendors at that time couldn't guarantee. So we made a lot of enemies in terms of the vendors, they hated us. These same vendors we partner with now. So it's kind of got full 360, you know, it's, it's bizarre, but we needed an edge. We needed a story. We needed something to get us off the ground. And that was our story. Yeah. Well, it makes so much sense. And, and like you say, I said, you know, that evolution, and we'll talk all about the evolution of phase three and that as you grow, your positioning changes, the value to the marketplace changes. And like you say, when you're five of you, the vendor might not want to partner. When there's over, you know, 100, 150 of you, suddenly they do. But I, I think it's a really powerful point, you know, for people listening as well, because in our industry, yes, because of the, you know, to your point, expectation managing, people are, get uncomfortable with sales. And I suspect some of it is what you've touched on. You know, they, they expect everyone should want to work with them. You know, my world's marketing and, you know, pe- I'll have people say to me, well, should, shouldn't marketing bring us, you know, new business all the time? And actually, you know, like you said, if if it did, yeah, I'd be doing their business because it it'd be that easy, but that's not how the world works. And I I think that understanding those expectations is really powerful. I guess you you touched on something that I thought was 
was interesting because it's true around that luck piece. And I'll ask it, but it might be luck, it might be judgment. You know, were there any things you did in those kind of first few years of phase three that, you know, those pivotal moments, things that had a massive, you know, disproportional impact on the business, you know, either good or bad, you know, be it luck or as I say, be it judgment that, you know, you had to respond to something? Oh, wow. I mean, I had a lot to learn very, very quickly in terms of working on the business versus working in the business. You know, there was when, when, I, when I started, Nick, I didn't even know what VAT was. I, I sent, you know, invoices to customers or, or no, actually a contractor sent me an invoice and it had VAT on it. And I'm, I'm like, what are you charging me an extra 17.5% for here? Obviously 17.5% in those days. And um, he had to explain to me what it was. And then I had to obviously learn that and this and the other. But in terms of pivotal moments, I think for me, my first employee and getting a couple of people into the business was, was obviously crucial. Not too long after I launched, obviously, you know, uh, Three or four years later, we had the whole kind of credit crunch recession of 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 uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So that was pivotal. We had to ride our luck and, and work our way through that. But I think all of these things are challenges. You have to accept. You 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 can't run away. You can't turn your back on these things. You know. And we use that to our advantage. In that, okay, you still need to implement a system you still need to make enhancements you still need to do something with your hr payroll tech now that you have less funds in the account mr public sector council why not work with us because we are more affordable you know you can get two of our consultants for the same price as one consultant from the vendor and all of this kind of stuff so i think in terms of pivotal moments in the early days Getting that first employee, because just just for me to prove that, oh, I now employ somebody, you know that this is that can be a model. And I I think obviously things that were totally out of our control, like you know recession, credit crunch, was absolutely crucial uh, to us. Moving forward a little bit, so kind of when we're now perhaps year seven or year eight into the business, I landed quite a big kind of partner deal, which I suppose on reflection actually slowed down our longer term growth because the value of this deal over time was 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 pretty big and it was kind of you know we were like 75 80% of our business was this one deal with a ton of contractors working for the vendor basically it was great for me personally from a finance point of view or for the business but but actually it slowed down our growth because if that had not happened I think we could have been four or five years ahead of where we are today. I always say I think we're kind of five to six, six years behind where I would like the business to be. But that's just that's just my mindset. And as great as that relationship was with that vendor and you know, revenue was fantastic and margin was brilliant, it it kind of overtook us as a business. And we we didn't have space or capacity to do anything different and to grow quicker. So then that came to an end after five years, six years or so. And then we kind of moved and, and, and progresses the, progressed the, the business forward. So I think to answer your question, in terms of pivotal moments and challenges, I think they were certainly the first few in the kind of first five, five, maybe six, seven years. Well, some great examples there, Asad. And I think your point, particularly around the recession, given you know where we are at the moment, is is just a great reminder of shape what you do and say to the world we're in. Like you say, when times are lean, you get more of our consultants. When times are good, we'll 
you know, there's, I'm sure, a, a different version of the pitch that works just as well. I'd love to, though, because you touched on the fact that deal slowed your business down. That feels very, I guess, counterintuitive. You know, I, I've sat in meetings like this where, or like panels and, and events where people say the best thing you can do is get a partner deal or, you know, get a big deal. And obviously, 80% of your business with one client probably meant some sleepless nights. But <laughs> yeah. why, why did it slow you down? Because on the face of it, you'd say, well, that's sped you up. That's grown your business by 80%. The issue we had, there was, there was three of us in the business at this point. There was me and two, two employees. And all of our time was spent servicing this customer, this, this one partner. And yeah, we had a you know, 10, 20% of our business was, was, was elsewhere at the time as well. But we, we didn't want to let it go because it was worth so much to us in, in terms of pounds and pence. But we were in a position to spend the time to then plan to see what we can do with all of, all of, all of a sudden the bank balance is looking good what do we do next where is our next partner this model has worked so well let's go and speak to another 10 partners and you know see if we can get another two or three it just took up so much time effort resource and i suppose it was if i'm being totally honest my my naivety and looking thinking oh look i've got suddenly three of us and we're doing you know I think three point something million in revenue and a, a ridiculous margin of three people. You know, that's a pretty good margin for employees, good, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely, and and I got a bit too comfortable thinking. I suppose not. Not I've made it, but I, I probably got a bit cocky. If I'm being totally honest, you know, you've got to be honest with yourself, haven't you? I probably got a bit cocky, and I didn't then do what I should have done until that partnership came to an end, which is, and the partnership spanned five years. So that's why I say I think it slowed us down. And obviously the flip side of that is we benefited hugely and were then able to make decisions later on down the line with a level of financial freedom, which is obviously crucial in, in, in any business. But I think whilst we were in it, it just slowed us down a touch. Oh, it's, a, it's a really good point, as and comes back to something actually you mentioned earlier around learning to work on and in the business, because that example sounds like because of the size, et cetera, you, you were so much in the business, you couldn't work on. And as you were, you know, you very honestly shared, you, you're kind of also comfortable with that. So you're, you're not looking out, you know, it's the old, I don't know if you've read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? It's that kind of, you're not looking for the next one. You know, you're not looking for where's the next deal if you're always working on the main one. And that's, it's just a really interesting I think story for anyone else listening because I'm sure some people would see that as that golden kind of goose but actually like you say having now sat there you know however many years later like actually what seemed great at the time has, has potentially held you back five years in your view which is you know, a really interesting perspective. I will add to that as well that you, you don't know what you don't know either at that point you know if I'd have been surrounded by people who had grown similar or, or you know similar types of businesses and they were advising me and mentoring me in terms of, all right, great, you've got this now, brilliant, this is what you need to do next, or why don't you plan this, why do you do that? That It might be a different story, but I didn't have that kind of, that circle at that time either. Well, that, I think, gives us a nice chance to jump to today and kind of accelerating that journey. Because like I said, we, we've talked about, it sounds like, up to the first seven years. We've got 13 more to cover, and we'll, <laughs> we'll try and uh, you know, highlight some of the key bits. Because, And maybe the start to this is when we talked about sort of where you are today, you called it like version three of phase three. To help our, our listeners and kind of place some of those bits we've just talked about, 
it, how do you delineate those? What was sort of one to two to three? And then we can dive into some of the differences. Okay. So I think version 1.0 of phase three is, is everything we've just discussed up to date, really kind of the bombs on seats, niche recruitment, keep costs low, two, three, four employees, and, you know, think we're the best thing since sliced bread, <laughs> which we clearly weren't. Version 2.0, I'm not sure if there's a time where you can actually say we're now out of 2.0 or we're into 3.0, but we're certainly planning 3.0 and we're in and around 3.0. But version 2.0 is when we grew our internal team. We started to provide services rather than providing people. We added services, so, so things like uh, managed payroll services and, and outsourced payroll. We expanded our markets into, uh, so we historically have been HR payroll, we're in our finance as well. We started building the recurring revenue in the business, the ARR, and building out functions within the team. So, you know, we now have a HR team, we have customer success, we have finance, we have professional services, managed services, so on, and marketing, sales, uh, so on and so forth. And it was very much a growing phase, basically, version 2.0. Version 3 will obviously be a growth stage as well, but it's more around digital transformation. It's about meeting very big revenue targets and and, and five-year plans obviously numbers of employees and we're now a metrics and kind of KPI driven organization really you know we have god knows how many reports that we look at on a on a monthly basis around kind of EBITDA and utilization and marketing stats that you, you'll probably know your MQLs and all this all this kind of stuff you know so that is a it's it's part of version 2.0 but it's going to continue into 3.0, which will be our real kind of, we're now ready to to achieve everything we want to achieve. The functions are there. And, you know, we've kind of created a model where we've gone first with creating the structure within the business. And now as we, as hopefully revenue and, and margins grow, people come in, we can just slot them into the right function. The right processes are, are already in place. Um, with, with tweaking, of course, as you as you need to. That is a really succinct overview, Asad, and and I think it gives us some great topics to jump into because, again, like we talked about with other areas of your journey, that these are things I am hearing other consultancies talk about or want to do, and there's lots of noise in the market. And I maybe we start with the V one to two because you mentioned you you you're in this world where actually you had a business that was going great. You're making, you know, decent margin. You're also presumably had le- little risk because if they're contractors and they get let go, like you know, your risk is your three employees, not your yeah x hundred c- contractors. And I'd love to understand. And I I don't know if it all happened at once. And you can tell me like what was it that made you say actually right? We're going to go into these other service lines. So like manage payroll, which not only is a different business, but it's also a different business model, as I understand it. Like lower, it's a volume play; it's not a margin play. You know, you mentioned around building ARR. So, what, yeah, what led you to really look to grow out those different offerings? Because they're very different. It's not like saying we're doing HR contractors and then we're doing finance contractors. You know, payroll, for instance, different world. What made you take the challenge? So we got to a point, and I wanted to feel that I was running a proper business. 
And, and there's no definition of a proper business, is there? Of course not. But in my mind, it was one that had a number of employees that and, and that offered a lot more. And, and ultimately, that wasn't overly dependent on me, a uh, key man or, or whatever you, the, the term is you want to you call it. And as I brought people into the business, you bring ideas into the business, don't you? And you bring knowledge and, and people have done something elsewhere and different conversations start to to, to happen. And that's really where the ideas for for different services came into play. Obviously, there's a there's a a margin point there, isn't there? You know, the the the, the contractor market is is safe, but obviously the margin for your employed resources is is significantly higher. So that then felt to me like the opportunity to really grow out our our internal team. Things like uh, managed payroll, you know. Again, you you speak to people, you go to events or or whatever it is, and you understand the model around ARR and recurring revenue, what that actually could mean for your business moving forward, and that is, I suppose, what 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 really helps us to 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 make those decisions. And within the the things you chose, what was it that made you go for? Because I can completely agree on the say ARR point. What was it that made you go for? Let's take managed payroll. Because, and I, again, to, to make it so the sort of why I'm asking this makes sense, I, it feels like while it's in HR, it's quite a shift. You, know, you did complex HR system transformation. Some might look at this and say payroll is a very different function within HR. So why was it payroll that kind of you said, yeah, actually, this is something we could really add value to our clients in? Well, we, do, we used to implement payroll systems as well. It wasn't just HR, so there, there was a natural kind of fit there as well. And then obviously payroll, there's a there's a obvious link with HR, and there's an obvious link with finance. That that, that debate rumbles on, doesn't it? Should payroll sit in HR or finance or standalone or whatever? But I just think that we had the the capabilities and the resources to be able to do it. Customers were asking us, "Do you provide this service as well? You've implemented this service for us, but do you provide?" managed services or part managed or fully outsourced and the, the, the various different models uh, within payroll. And so we thought, you know what, we can make this work. Let's let's give it a go, basically. And we started, make sure I get my dates right now, probably three or four years ago, we won kind of payroll awards for our service. Uh, we're on various frameworks, uh, we've got some fantastic customers and it has grown beyond what we thought it would grow and in terms of the speed of which we thought it would it would grow. Our plan is to have kind of a 50-50 business in terms of 50% managed services and 50% professional services. We're not quite there yet, but you know, obviously you win a few big professional services projects and and the the you know the the ratios kind of tip in, in, in their in PS's favor a little bit. But that's our our, our long-term plan and I genuinely think it's one of the best decisions we have ever made. I say we because it's not always me. Best decisions we have ever made at phase three is to start a managed service side of the business. Because there's a natural flow on there as well. We help customers to select the system. We then help them implement the system. And we then help them manage the system. You know, it may not be managed payroll. It may be, you know, sysadmin or something like that. But the whole process now, from start to end, we can we can support on uh, the customers' journeys. When you explain it like that, it makes perfect sense. 
I, I think to your point, and, and as much for anyone listening, like you say, it, it really is just looking at that value you you know the value the customer needs and where can you provide that and and it sounds like in your case that the customers were coming to you and and you know it was a natural fit you touched on something and this is where I'd be interested how you structured the business you know you you mentioned earlier like the goal of phase 2 was so it wasn't you weren't a key man if you like a key person in the business and obviously you are a key person but you weren't sort of doing everything how did you and the team set up or how have you structured managed services to be able to achieve that scale without, you know, you having to do two day jobs and getting no time to see, you know, friends, family, working weekends. How, how did you set that up to be managed internally as much as externally? It's a really good question. And I think it goes back to the point we, we touched upon earlier. And, and I'll probably refer back to this quite a few times throughout the, the, the remainder of this podcast. Because I'm not a consultant, I've had to rely upon the amazing input of my colleagues. So the payroll managed service function is run by, well, obviously we have a head of professional services, we have a, a COO, James, and obviously then the, the, the payroll team underneath all of that. That is a structure that we have. Obviously have BD and sales selling into it, marketing, obviously providing the overviews and all the marketing stuff around it. But because I haven't had the experience of previously running a payroll managed service or being a payroll consultant myself, I've had to rely on other people. And what that then does is it takes you out of the equation because I can look at it and think, okay, well, that part doesn't make common sense to me or business sense. And that's the value I can add. I can't add the value in terms of the framework around payroll or the accreditations we have to go through or annually and all of that side. So I'm I'm relying on my team to do that. And I think that then creates longevity within the team. It creates loyalty, trust, and all of these key attributes that you need in any business, but particularly one where the owner, for, for want of a better term, or, or founder like myself, can add limited value to certain areas. Does that make sense? Not sure if I've yeah, answered your question may, there or not, but no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I said, and I think to your point, you know, it's it's that relying on people, you know, not being the smartest in the room, if you like, or or finding people who are smarter than you in those areas. It, I guess, it it, it does lead to an an extension of that question. And again, this will be something I'm sure others listening might think of. What you said makes perfect sense. It then relies on you recruiting the right people and. There's a really interesting question in there of how do you, and and you know I know it's more than just you in the business. Like how can you make sure you're recruiting the right people? Because to your point, if you're not a payroll expert, how do you know what to ask to know if you've got the best payroll expert? If that makes sense, that that's what the team are there for. That's what the team are there for. I I try and jump on as many interviews as I can because I want to. I, I think I'm quite a good judge of people. I may not be able to judge them based upon their experience within payroll or HR or finance, but just in terms of speaking to people. So obviously the head of payroll or head of uh, managed services would be responsible for the recruitment process. What I did in the early days is I recruited people that I thought could fit the bill. And I was, I was again, I, I, I refer back to, to luck and uh, destiny. I'm a big believer in destiny, by the way. So some of the people I recruited or the, some of the very few, you know, the first, within the first 10, 15 recruits within phase three, still with us today you know including james who's my coo 
who started as a started as a contractor. Started as a contractor, then became a, a consultant, an unemployed consultant, head of this director, and now he's he's, he's COO and 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 probably fifty percent, oh, just over fifty percent of our management team all started in the same way. So we've got a mix of people that have been brought in for specific roles like marketing and you know things that we didn't have, so we couldn't grow them ourselves. But in terms of professional services, managed services, our COO customer success, these are all homegrown. And I love that fact. I love the fact that we can offer someone the opportunity to start within a business and seven, eight years later, you can be a COO, you know? Now that's very much on the individual as, as well as me and, and, and phase three, of course. But these are the, the, the key individuals that are on a day-to-day basis running phase three. I have absolute trust and faith, 100% in them to make the right decisions. Just to go back uh, uh, to, in terms of your question, how do you ensure you recruit the right people? I think that's the, the hardest thing in business. The hardest thing in business is the people because, it, it you know, look after your people and, and they'll look after your business and all this kind of stuff that we see on LinkedIn all the time. Maybe cliched, but it's absolutely 100% spot on as well. And I think we're going to touch upon this later on as well, where we probably rushed a few recruits when we tried to, where we kind of grew a bit too fast, but we're now very much taking our time. And it's the biggest advice I can give to anybody is try and recruit the best people you can afford at, at that particular time, because not underestimate the importance of having the right people in your business. I think great advice, I said, and to your point, and I, I want to move us there fairly quickly because the culture piece obviously is why we met your point around the board. I'm fascinated in you know, how you've created a culture that brings people through. So I, I probably only have one more question on on that sort of V1, V2, V3 piece. And it's, it is in part to bring in our friend who I, I introduced at the start and have kept hidden because there was something and, and I'll ask it and you can place the two different parts. Because when we spoke ahead of this conversation, you kind of just made a passing comment that actually you'd run the business for a long time without a plan or kind of a, a you know, documented plan. You obviously had a vision for it. And you touched on V3, you're now looking at five-year plans. You're now looking at metrics. And this is where enter Joe Omani, you know, who re- listeners to this show will know, many people know in the consulting industry, obviously an expert in consulting. I think the only professor in the world on consulting, which I think is a great, a great accolade to have. Oh, you're going to give him a big head now. He's been, his head's already <laughs> too big as it is. <laughs> well, I'll let you guys chat about that at the next board meeting. But it would be great to understand, to your point, like, where did those two things enter? Was it you knew you needed... To expertise. So Joe K, was it you wanted to do a plan and then that plan led to you? How did that happen? And why, I guess, in the first place, did you decide, right, we're now having plans? Because that sounds like quite a shift from where you were. Well, I think to, to answer that, I need to go back to the beginning and, and uh, my naivety, I think, is, is, is the reality here. And I didn't know what I didn't know. I, I just repeated what I'd done previously. I looked at the numbers and I was content. Um, looking back, had I had a mentor at that stage or a business partner or an advisor, I didn't think I needed one, but hindsight's a great thing, yeah? Um, and we got to a stage. Or, or I also never, th- I'll just say, I never thought I needed a plan in any element of my life as well. I think, you know, you, it, it's difficult to separate your everyday non-work life with your with your work life, isn't it? I yeah. think that's just how I'm wired. And when you say, just to define it for our listeners, because you mentioned about destiny, when you say plan, is that 
kind of a lower level. Like, it sounds like you always had a vision or a destiny of like, I will be here. But it was it more that kind of right on Wednesday, I'm going to do this on Thursday, I'm going to do that just again to paint the leveling. Well, not so much the Wednesday, I'm going to do this Thursday, I'm going to do this. I think more the 12 month plan. Fact, you, yeah, this yeah. is where I want to be 12 months from now. And this is what I'm going to do to get there. I yeah. I always had a a kind of framework that I worked within. So, you know, uh, this is how many calls I'm going to make. And every day I'd write down, I'd prep everything I'm going to do in my journal. You know, I've got probably 50, six, God knows how many journals in my loft upstairs. But I never had anything any more structured than that and long-term. So nothing 12 months, nothing five years, no long-term planning. You know, things changed so fast in those early days as well. I, I, I never understood the concept of a five-year plan because things were changing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. What's the value in, you know, 48 plus months from now? It didn't make any sense to me. But I think my outside of work life was like that as well. It's not wide like that, pretty instinctive. I think I work better when the pressure is on, you know, in the last minute cramming my revision for GCSEs and A-levels, you know, crammed the notes and stuff for this meeting, to be fair, until this morning. Um, it's going all right so far. Yeah, well, I hope so. A lot of it's kind of autopilot, I think. Um, But I did know that I wanted to achieve something. I did know I wanted to to be successful in whatever I did. That came from my my upbringing, my family. Uh, I've told you, my father, a wider extended family, all run their own businesses. So I always knew I was going to do something like that. Uh, I also appreciate that success means different things to to different people. But in those early days, if I'm being totally honest, it meant probably pounds and pence to me. I think a lot of people would probably say that in their 20s. You know, I work a lot with my, my gut feeling. And I think maybe you have to go through that to come out the other end to see what the reality actually is, which is why now we have a board. And obviously, Joe is is a is a uh, a very big part of that. We had other advisors in the past who helped us formulate our five-year plan. The chap who helped us do that is the CEO of a multi-billion-pound organization now. You know, so there's there's a lot that has changed. A within me, as I'm learning and progressing. But yeah, planning has never been my my strong point. But I absolutely would recommend it to anybody starting out i'm not saying my ways there, there is no right and wrong in anything really but it's yeah i, I certainly advocate for, for planning now well there's something interesting in there again to your own kind of development as a leader how did you get comfortable with that because to your point, if you've always been someone who doesn't plan how have you got comfortable and and you know keen to use plans because sometimes that can just be you know a bit of a tissue rejection if it's like an organ donation kind of like, I just don't get plans. How have you got yourself to be able to love five year plans? You know, as the man who you know, hated twelve month plans twenty years ago, how have you got to that point? I don't think I'd say I love five year plans, but I understand, <laughs> sorry, I put words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand the necessity of that now from a business our size and scale to be able to achieve what it is you want to achieve. Every area of the business needs to understand what they're doing in the next 12, 24, 36 months to be able to get there. We now have five-year plans. We have 90-day plans as well. So every quarter, we'll upload that to our kind of internal system and stuff. And everybody can see what every function is working on for the next quarter, for the next 90 days. So we really break it down for the team as well. And then you combine the two and that's your 12 month. And then obviously the, the longer term five, 
year one as well. Uh, we're, we're kind of year and a half into it. But I would also advocate it's not a case of age of five-year plan and you can't touch it again. Things are still going to change. Five years is a long time. So be prepared to amend that plan as required as well. But I'd probably say I'm more a fan of the, the 90-day plan than I am with the five-year plan still because just in my mind, that just makes more sense. It's there, it's tangible. It's only 90 days, it's only three months. You can achieve something there. Whereas five years from now, so much is going to change that it's almost kind of feels like it could be a bit of a waste. No, I, I, I get what you mean. As I, I can't remember whose quote it is, but it always stuck with me. Of most people overestimate what they can do with a year and underestimate what they can do in 10 for the reason you say is kind of actually... Yeah, five years, ten years. How much has changed? You know, five years ago, we we didn't even know there was a pandemic. Now look where we are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly my that, point, Nick. Yeah, yeah. That can and and I love what you're saying. I said about the the kind of three month plans. And I think a nice point to actually bring us to culture because you you know you touched on there, and it sounds like you've got a very open, transparent culture on every you know if every, every department knows what they're doing and everyone else, they can help each other. And you mentioned earlier around fifty percent. I think you said your management team have kind of grown up through the business. So maybe to to open this section, it'd be great to get your perspective on kind of how you see your culture and what you've done to build that in the way that you have. The number one priority at phase three is culture. And I wrap that up in terms of empathy for your team, putting your people first, not pretending to put your people first, actually putting your people first, continually enhancing, cultivating your approach to people, particularly us, where we're a people business, you know, there's no, there's no product as such that we sell. There's no tech. It, it, it's our service, our time. So you have to have a real willingness to want to understand your people, what they want, how they work, how you can support them. You may not even agree with it some of the times, but you, you have to prioritize it. It's like I said earlier, you know, look, look after your people and, and and they'll look after your business. There's no end point to this. You have to imagine thinking, right, we're going to put our people above our profit in the, in the business, right? That's painful to some people. And it, you know, but that's the mindset you need to have, I think, to have a truly people first, culture led approach. I think I have to mention, I can't talk about phase three without mentioning our former MD, a lady called Kate Wadia, who again started off as a client, actually, many, many years ago. And then I recruited her into the business and she started it. Anyway, long story short, she ended up as our MD, um, tragically passed away a few years ago now uh, from, from ill health. However, Kate Wadia was the lady who really taught me everything there is to know about treating your people well and the culture of your team. She would put everybody first, often to the detriment of herself. And I'm nowhere near the same level as, as Kate. I can, I can guarantee you that. But I'm trying to understand, to try and put our people first at every opportunity. And, and it gets harder uh, the bigger you get, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, a 30-man operation cannot be the same as a 100-man operation. My team is sick and tired of me saying that, that, that same phrase to them. But it's true. And why would you want to be? You wouldn't, you wouldn't get to 100 if you wanted to be a 30-man operation, yeah? You know, 
So it's something Joe says, actually, that, that a lot of people often get to 100, 110, 20, and they scale back again because they don't like it, you know. But we make mistakes in perhaps an initiative we put in place, or we might think everything's going really well from a culture point of view, but actually we've made wrong decisions around things and, and people get upset. But you're never going to keep everybody happy either. So again, it's managing that. But yeah, I think, you know, it, 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 we've always been a, a people first. You, you know, you talked about great places to work. We were, we were delighted to be on the top 100 list there. And it is something that I'm, it comes from the very top. For me, James and the, the, C, the SLT, senior leadership team, and all the way down, we, we try and get the right feel for culture. And, and we want everyone to try and adopt and stuff. And there's this perks and stuff and initiatives. But I think more than anything, it's putting your people first and having a real empathy and trying to walk in their shoes, basically. Well, well, I think really powerful to hear Asad and, and very sorry to hear about Kate. And I, I'm keen to touch on a lot of the advice she obviously shared with you because she had a huge impact by the sounds of it. And it, it's interesting. Firstly, you're, you're not alone in that 30 and 100 comment. The consultancy I used to work at, the former managing partner there, Mohammed Mansour, I remember him getting on stage every every company meeting and said some variant of, we wouldn't want to work how we did, you know, when we were 20, now we're 50 or, you know, it's different numbers. But I, I think you're spot on. I, I shamelessly rob it for my own team as well. So if any of my team are listening, they probably hate me here. Sorry, no, hate no, hearing just, it as well. Just to expand on that though, Nick, as well. You know, we, we, when we were 20, 30, even 40, everybody knew everybody's partner's name, pet, dog, cat, children, all, all of that. And obviously we have to, this is pre-COVID as well, where we've always been kind of, work from home in a way, but people used to still come into the office quite regularly. So you see people, you talk to people more, you meet every new employee. So, and it really helped. And that, you know, our culture was kind of something everyone used to talk about. Now that we're remote, well, fully remote first, and the site, the team is so big, there's still people within the business I've never met, you know, that have been with us a month, two, three. I'll, I'll maybe see some of them at Christmas party and stuff in a few weeks time. But it, how do you deal with that then? How can they feel the same warmth and glow and culture that everybody else felt in the early days? And that is the trick because whoever can nail that has got the most amazing business out there. And and we haven't nailed it yet, but we're getting there. Well, and, and I think to your point, I said that evolution, you know, those... That, people join those different businesses for those different reasons. You know, just as you said, you know, Joe talked about different entrepreneurs and people running consultancies wanting different sides. I guess, you know, someone joins a 10-person business in certain ways to be not in a 100-person business. And actually, it sounds like what you've achieved into your point of cracking it, you've, you've created a culture that lets people grow with the firm or that the culture doesn't feel too dissimilar. And you, you mentioned, and just because I really like this kind of putting people first piece of your culture you you touched on earlier like actually some of the things you're doing you may not agree with exactly what people want and i always find that the people debate can become quite polarizing because some people think culture is kind of just you know giving everything someone everything they want and it's all snowflakes versus you know the other side if you look at the investment banks it's like be at your desk and work for 20 hours a day and then take your bonus and, and that's your goal they, I don't know if there's any specific examples that jump out for you, but kind of how do you balance, you know, those two tensions of having a really happy team and giving the team and your team that culture and the kind of commercial aspect? How have you had to do things you don't want to give the culture while re retaining the growth you've achieved? It's, it's a really good question. 
And I'll be candid and honest enough to tell you that it's been one of the issues that we've struggled with the most because we almost have to go into reverse gear because all of a sudden things like utilization are being measured. So for example, you have a utilization target, which, which maybe three, four years ago you never had. And people are thinking that um, now it's Big Brother spying on us and this isn't the company I joined and so on. So you have to be again, you've got to be, you've got to be open, you've got to be honest, you've got to explain to the team how all of this adds up in terms of where they sit within the business, what impact their role has on others. You know, if they're not utilized at the target level, then that has an impact on the amount of money coming into the business. If that then has an impact on, you know, cash flow, which then has an impact on doing all the nice things we want to do, you know, and I think it's, it has been, it had been tough. And, but I'm confident that the people who want to understand and want to grow with your team will always make the effort and will always understand. And you'll always have a few who, who perhaps don't care and, and are literally there for the, for the paycheck each month. And you know what? That's absolutely fine as well. I don't think you have to have everybody bought into your journey or this, that, and the other, because everyone's priorities are different. You know, some people can't work extra hours. Some people love the fact that we have unlimited holidays. Some people don't like it because they can only ever go because they've got children and they can only ever go in the summer holidays where the prices are double or treble. You know, so my my point is you're never going to get everybody happy, but you have to try, Nick. The trick is you've got to keep on cultivating. You've got to keep on going out there listening to people, you know, the pulse service that we do on a monthly basis, listening to how, what do people want? How do people want to be communicated to? How do people want to be spoken to? How do people, you know, what initiatives do they want to see in place next? And sometimes you might get something daft like a, you know, a rotisserie chicken machine in the office kitchen. Do, do you have one of those? We don't, no, thank God. But, <laughs> and I know someone put that down as a, as a joke comment and stuff like that. But, you know, you're never going to please everyone, but you have to keep on trying. No, no, I think it's a great philosophy to your point, I said. And I guess that acceptance, isn't it? It's You're not going to... 100% in anything in life is impossible. But if you're trying for 100, you'll, you know, you'll get close. I, I was reading an article this morning that was talking about the British cycling team. And everyone, you know, most people know the story of their kind of 1% gains. But it's, it's to your point, as long as you're trying to get better, things will just keep... Him, you know, you're going in the right direction. And there was something in what you said, I want to come back to the pulse surveys momentarily, but something struck me in what you said around that kind of how you communicate with people. And it, there sounds like a real honesty in what you're saying, you know, in terms of how you're communicating. So to your point with utilization, it's not about big brother or not. It's about helping the team understand why those things matter. And to you, I guess, treating people like adults is, okay, if we don't, ensure everyone is utilized at X, the business doesn't make money. And at some point that means we can't have as many people or parties or is that kind of the approach that has been twinned with that? Is that kind of always doing better and just always being more honest or is, is the, yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. It has to be the only way. I think you have to be as upfront and as honest as you can with a team. My years of experience will tell you that some people will, will value that. I think, I think the majority of people will value that. Some people won't care, again, which is which is absolutely fine. But you shouldn't move away from what you think is the right way of dealing with people. 
And I think that is the, yeah, I think that's the only way because you have to treat people like adults. You have to treat people like grownups. Now, I say that, and I will also say that you get to a certain size and scale and you can't share everything with everybody either because A, why would you? B, not everybody needs to know everything. And C, in some cases, it may just put them off. They might guess, you know, oh, we've got a bit of a cash flow problem. The word in cash flow problem, am I going to get paid? Am I going to get paid on time? You know, so you don't need to worry people unnecessarily either. But I do think that ultimately, if you treat people like that, then you will get, you know, it's reciprocal, isn't it? You'll get that back in return, which then helps and aids the growth of the culture that you want to create within the business. Yeah, and and your point there as well around being careful with as much what you share as how you share it, because to your point, you know, as as you and the leadership team running the business, cash flow is something you deal with day in day out. You know, it's not a it's not a scary topic, but like like you give that example, if you say cash flow and someone's not used to cash flow, they'll think cash flow means no cash, means no pay, means <laughs> and and un, but I I I completely hear your point of it's it's the honesty and sharing what you can in a way you can. So that people feel feel brought in, and you touched on pulse surveys, and I wanted to bring it up just because it's live at the moment internally for my business assets. So these interviews are as much selfish for me as my listeners. But I, I just really be interested to understand when did you bring those in and, and why? Because again, typically in our industry, you know, great place to work to become quite a big initiative, but that's an annual survey. You say you're surveying people monthly. Someone listening might think, "Bloody hell, Asa, that's a lot of forms and surveys." And you know, to your point, are you actually just surveillance? You know, nanny state and all of that. Why do you do them? And how did you bring them in? And, and I guess the obvious extension: what do you get from doing that? Yeah. So we brought it in a few years ago in terms of our uh, internal HR system, which is something that we we implement for our customers as well. And it was a way of understanding. It's totally anonymous, so we don't know who said what. And it was a way of understanding how people are feeling because we got to a stage where you can't ask, you can't, as, as, you can't speak to everybody as, as you used to. You know, those kind of water cooler conversations, coffee machine conversations don't always happen now. So we have a monthly pulse survey. It's questions about, you know, how do you feel? How do you think you contribute towards the business? Do you, do you feel you know the direction of travel within phase three and, and, and where we're going? All that kind of stuff. Marked out of five. And we have uh, reasonably good feedback every single month. Some of the questions may go up and down, but we're we're constantly above a four, which are, are, out of five. So it's, it's obviously it's very, pretty, very pretty good out of five, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we use that feedback to then discuss, okay, well, if people don't understand the, the direction of travel for phase three, let's say for the last three months, yeah, then we need to communicate that bit better. Because clearly, 100 people are saying that this is only a two out of five every month. So that bit needs to be reviewed and looked at. And then how can we communicate the plan better, for for example? So it's been really valuable to us in terms of how we do that uh, and and the feedback that we get. That sounds brilliant. And again, practical questions, and this is as much selfish as for our listeners. Go for it, absolutely. So am I inferring, you ask the same questions each month, so you don't have to say exactly what they are, but the same three or five. And this might be really specific, but I'm intrigued. Why why out of five, not out of 10? Was that a a decision or? Uh, That's a really good point. Um, 
I don't know the answer to that question, if I'm being honest. I think it may just be the way the system is is set up, or it may be something we've implemented ourselves, but I, I don't actually know the, that level of detail. You know, that, Sorry about that. As I say, well, no, don't, don't you worry, sir. We could, um, I was just intrigued again, because I think it's something, I know our listeners are details people, to your point of kind of, what do you get if you come from a consulting background, you focus on detail, which can sometimes be, you know, to our point, better or worse. I guess the last piece on, on culture, because I, I am mindful of, of your time, is you touched on, and I just want to make sure I got it right to ask the question, you are now a remote first organization, is that right? Yep. So we work from home, we have an office, and people are welcome into the office any day of the week, should they wish to, but our contracts are work from home contracts or remote contracts. And so, and I infer, it doesn't matter too much, but I infer then that you now recruit, like you, your team isn't just Manchester-based. Anywhere in the, the UK. region based. Yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. So, then the question to your point of scale, I always find it, and you might to what you said around people, you don't know if anyone's got it correct. You might not say you have, but how do you foster that culture in a remote first organization where, you know, today I'm in my kind of study, you're in your study. It's great when you're chatting, but otherwise it feels quite isolating. How have you created that in a world where you can't just bring everyone to the office on a Wednesday? With difficulty is is the, the honest answer. Uh, we have teams within teams within teams. and we encourage these teams to get together as often as possible. You know, there's some people who may be Southeast-based, so they're welcome to, you know, jump into a Regis or, a, or or whatever it may be to get together and go out for drinks and, and food and coffees and, and work together or whatnot. And then what we do is we say, okay, Wednesday is the day most people will be in the office. But again, it's more of a social space. So when you come in, there's so many people, it's actually then hard. If you're going to come in and just sit on Teams calls all day, what's the point of coming in the office? You might as well do that at home. You know? So we have our phase three birthday anniversary party each year. We have a summer party. We have a Christmas party. They're, those three are fixed. You know, no matter what happens, we, we get the whole team or as many of the team together as possible then. And then they can come to the office and, you know, people are there for each other. Within the within their teams, they have the option to get together whenever they want as well, whether that's office based or or external based. But it is difficult because not everybody. We've got to a stage now. I don't think this is just at phase three, where people are so comfortable at home. You know, it's become a habit, and I don't necessarily think it's a good habit. Personally, that's just my personal belief. I think everything I've talked about today, in terms of you know communication and relationship building or report all of that happens better face to face i'll argue to the cows come home with anybody if they they try to sell the idea that you can create a better relationship remotely with somebody i don't think you can i think you can still create a relationship but it won't be as solid and and as as sturdy as you can face to face and it's exactly the same with your internal team you know it is really really difficult obviously Communication is key. So actually, very recently this week, we've, we've launched a new communications platform internally. Uh, we had like a, a team WhatsApp group and, and you know, all these little small initiatives to keep people engaged and involved in the team. But it is, it is tough. It is tough. No, no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I agree with you as well. I said the, you make better relationships in person as a organization we've we've always been three two which covid was really annoying for because we were doing it before it was popular as you know people say about bands they like but 
like like you, actually, those bonds are really important, which is why I was fascinated because there's a lot of organizations now where remote first is is the way they're going. And to your point, a lot of the you know, employment market want that. People have got comfortable with being at home. And for some people, it really works. You know, we, we work with a client where the client was London-based. A lot of their team was sort of up in, you know, some in Yorkshire, you know, some not far from you. But they had kids and other things that meant you weren't traveling to London five days a week, but traveling once a month or something that worked. And I think your point of those little engagement moments of, well, we've got our birthday, we've got our Christmas, et cetera, makes a lot of sense. I guess, is there anything else that, you know, to your point of the Pulse surveys, anything that's come up in them that has helped you improve that remote working? Anything that you know, was unexpected, but actually by doing has really helped improve the remote culture that you're building? Um, I can't think of any specific kind of levels of feedback that that helped us improve something. But I think one point that has always come off, similar to what I just said, is yeah, how we communicate with our team. And we really looked into that. We've looked at kind of culture building platforms, well-being platforms, which also have maybe a financial well-being and a mental well-being tools uh, associated with them, this, that, and the other. And I think, you know, we have a lot of systems, as you can imagine. And, and I think a lot of people just looked at it as a, another system, you know, but the way we communicate has probably been fed back to us the most via the Pulse service in terms of this needs to be looked at or how can we improve this and, and so on. Well, and it's, it's a fascinating point and, and I think a great lesson for anyone in, in culture of it. It's not always what you're saying, it's, it's to your how and how often. And actually, you know, when you're a larger organization, it can become very easy for the people at the top to think they're telling everyone something because they're talking about, you know, you, you will talk with your, you know, with James and your board about certain things day in, day out. But actually, for people who are further down or for, you know, in different roles in the organization, they, they don't hear about it. So I, I think a really, you know, a really great point. Asad, I, I think a great place to start to bring us towards the end of today, and appreciate you giving your time in the middle of the day for this as well. The last piece, and you can compare notes on this with Joe, because Joe has actually been on the podcast. So you can compare answers together. And I'll let you decide whether yours are better than his. I won't make judgment. But we have two questions that I ask every one of my guests. The first one is, is about books. And I'm, I'm going to make this longer than I usually do, more as a caveat, because my last guest, every so often a guest reminds me why maybe I shouldn't pick on books. But the question is, what book or books have you gifted or have had the biggest impact on you and why? The caveat is it doesn't have to be books. I've had guests who give YouTubes, podcasts, okay. people, um, or not people, actually, that's a lie. Books, <laughs> podcasts, gifting <you> know, magazines, people. <laughs> gifting people. That's not, yeah, let, that's a different podcast. So for now, I've saved my blushes. Um, what is it for you? Is it books? Is it something else? And what is the thing that you've you know gifted oh, or had the biggest impact and why? Wow. What do I gift? That's a really good question. I can answer the first one and I'll I'll caveat my answer by saying that I've I've never been a big reader of books. I've always read and I like an article more than than kind of reading a book as such. But in my early days in sales and stuff. Obviously, I was told about how to win friends and influence people. Uh, I know it's a dead obvious one. What's the other one? Uh, the the no, uh, seven you, you habits would be, of highly effective people. You'd be amazed as well. how few people have read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Well, it is one of the best books ever written, it's, but it's, I'll let you continue. It's fantastic. And there's now one, I gifted one recently to a member of our, uh, BDT. They, it, they've added it for the digital age. 
apparently. Okay. Now, I haven't read that version of it, um, but I've read the, the original many, many times. And what I find fascinating about these kind of books is that, and, and again, this might just be my experience, I don't know, they don't actually tell you anything you don't already know, but it's it's the implementation of it on a regular basis. You know, most people will know when you meet someone, or if you want to really focus, look them in the eye. That's not a, you know, that, that. now, again, this might be my my own kind of mindset, but this kind of stuff is really obvious. Really listen to people when they're speaking to you. Well, obviously, <laughs> but it's sometimes it's just that reminder, isn't it? And what I always say to people when you read a, a, a book like How to Win Friends and Influence People is if you just remember five or six key takeaways, key points from that book, then you will have learned a lot. The last book I read, funnily enough, is actually Joe's book on how to scale a business, which is absolutely fantastic, by the way, as well. Um, yeah, so that's probably the book I've gifted the most to to people. But again, I'm, I'm not a big reader of books. I, I, I love kind of articles, various topics, not even always business. Could be cars, could be could be anything watches whatever it is well there's uh, i'll have to introduce perfume, <laughs> fake perfumes um well i'll have to uh, a former guest of mine james o'sullivan runs a film called project one and, and his two shares he's not a reader either but were cars and watches on youtube um and aggregates aggregates is a whole nother conversation but there's a guy who does a fascinating youtube on aggregates so i'll have to introduce you two to compare notes on cars and watches brilliant but your point on uh how to win friends and influence people so funnily enough it's a book at hasn't come up that much is one of my personal favorites like you and I, and I think you're right asset you know it was written over a hundred years ago and I quite like the original because I, I like the quaint examples you know the the cow with the milk and all of this stuff yeah. but yeah. actually it is it's it's fundamental basics that just reminding yourself you know it's and your point's really powerful if you've got to implement it you know it's like I can read all of the gym routines in the world but I'm not going to get a six pack if I don't go to the gym you know or yeah. you know all of those sort of things. So I think some really, yeah, it's a really great example. I'd be fascinated what your colleague thinks of the digital age version and whether that still has the magic. They will be able to tell you. I should also, just because he will love it, you, you, Joe's book has come up two podcasts in a row. And I think they, I only am not sort of being specific because I think they, I think your episode and the other person's are going to come up concurrently. But yes, having not been mentioned for a while, Joe's book has come up twice. So I am. I will be tapping Joe up for a commission on his. Uh, I, I think his book you should. After list. I think you should. He actually made me uh, purchase a copy. He didn't even send me a free signed copy or anything. Can you believe it? But there you go. That's a different story altogether. But it is actually. If, if it depends what stage of your business you're at, I suppose. But I, I just found literally every single page fascinating because I've got an interest in it. Obviously, it's it, it's very relevant to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's and there's a whole you know life philosophy there of you will you can if you are interested you will find it interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm sure a guest of mine once said. And then the last piece I said, and this is advice to people who are kind of at different stages in their their consulting career. And you, I think, will have a unique perspective on this, having grown up running a consultancy, not having come from a consulting background. So I'm fascinated for your advice here. And you've got three people in front of you. One is. I'd call them a graduate. So you know, it might be someone coming into phase three today, fresh out of university. The second, I know them as a manager in consulting terms, but they're kind of that mid-late 20s of their career, you know, five, six, seven years in. They're, they're expert enough, they've got options, but they're not senior. And that third one is someone who 
is approaching a leadership role. So it could be James, you know, before you made him your COO. And the question is just what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Oh, wow. Okay. What one piece of advice? Piece of advice. Okay. So to somebody like a graduate kind of starting out, what would I say? I would say be patient. Don't jump the gun. Learn more about how business actually works, all the different functions, and that you have time on your side. You don't need to jump straight into it. That is what I would say. <laughs> yeah. And I'd actually use my own experience in that because I, I wasn't quite a graduate, but I was, you know, kind of five, six years post uni, uh, started phase three. If I could go back in time, I would possibly delay starting phase three and or have some kind of mentor or something alongside me. We're going to have to do a round two, Asad, because I'm going to have to ask you, not today because we don't have time, but around that question. That's round two. We'll put that on the shelf. Okay. I'd love to know more. The manager person. Um, so obviously there would have been in the industry for a while. I'd say pick your industry well. Uh the obvious choice is to go into what you know, leverage your contacts, uh, just manage the risk a little bit. Again, it's not too similar to someone starting out. What's your reason for for you know wanting to go into to to stay in consulting or or, or something like that? And then the partner person i think if someone's at partner level obviously they've already made it continue doing what you're doing maybe you're not an equity partner at this stage and you can possibly ask for equity and if you want to set up your own then well look you'll, you'll know the industry extremely well by that point you'll all the know-how all the clients all the contacts etc uh so on paper that leap becomes easier doesn't it to, to set up your own but it's about why you want to set up your own i think if you're at partner stage, perhaps it's easier to just have some equity and, and, and play it safe a little bit. There's some great answers in there. And, you know, those key bits of advice to your point of how to win friends and influence people, they stand the test of time. And sometimes it's not that it's obvious, it's that you're hearing it from someone else who has done it. Because to your point of shown that those things are the things that helped you get to where you are now with phase three. So some great advice i think to finish on and then the very last it's not really a question but it's more to help you if anyone listening to this you know wants to find out more about yourself wants to find out more about phase three where would you point them to where can they get in touch okay excellent well obviously you could go to our website which is phase3.co.uk and is that number three or it's, the, num three? it's the number three yeah so p-h-a-s-e number three.co.uk you can go to our linkedin page you can find me on LinkedIn as well and feel free to be in touch with me if there's anything we can help you guys with or if there's any of your kind of other consulting colleagues looking to have a conversation about anything be happy to always happy to speak to people amazing i said well thank you for today it has been really good to chat really good to learn more about your culture your journey obviously how you know joe and i've yeah, as I said, selfishly taking a ton from this, and I know my listeners will as well. So all that's left to say is, is thank you and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much, Nick. Honestly, I've really enjoyed it. Been a big pleasure. Thank you again. Fantastic, Asad. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you 
create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you. 